So yesterday was Stephanie and I's first pickleball tournament. And as you can expect, I felt some serious nerves about going into that tournament, which is completely normal. And what I personally was most afraid of was not losing. I kind of expected to lose. But I was most worried about the fact that we were supposed to be doing this to spend time together and to grow closer as a couple. And I was afraid that instead we would end up fight and blame shift and end up farther apart. So as I thought about how to avoid the possible conflict of marital strife when there's stress and competition involved, I thought, how can we deal with this situation in, in a peaceable way? How can we avoid getting into a fight? So I gave her all of my expectations. I told her, exactly, this is what I want you to do, and you better not give me a lip. <laughs> that was my solution. No, I'm kidding. That, was, that would be horrible. <laughs> and that would only cause the problem before the even tournament began. But instead, what I did was rather go to the Lord and pray, God, help, help me, help us. I need you. I cannot do this. I'm weakened in myself. I'm stubborn, prideful, sinful, and I need you to help this experience to be good. And so we prayed, and the Lord blessed that. We, I think, have grown closer together after that experience than further apart. So here was the format. The format was something called Round Robin, where everyone plays everyone, essentially. And so we were guaranteed three games, and if you were to win those three games, then you would go to the playoffs, and there was two playoff matches, and then eventually, if you won those, you would go to the goal. So the very first match that we played, this is where the nerves, anyone's ever played a tournament, this is where the nerves are at its fullest. But fortunately, we did really good. We actually easily beat the team, and we get, you know, Stephanie goes like this when my head gets really big. It's like blowing up like a balloon. So we get confidence, right, that we won that first game and we're doing good. It's like, okay, we can do this. So the second team comes out, and when you first see a team that you haven't played, you kind of size them up. How big are they? How tall are they? You know, can you beat them? You kind of mental expectation. And so I sized them up, and I thought, we beat the last team. We're going to beat this team. We're going to knock them out. And do you know what happened? <laughs> I think you can anticipate we lost. It was, uh, it was somewhat humiliating, especially because I think, at least in my opinion, we were the favorite team. And, uh, yeah, we lost. Not cool, but we kept our head. You know, I didn't yell too much. And uh, it, went, it went pretty well. So the next team... We really took it out on those guys because we had just lost. And, and then we ended up winning. We went to the playoffs. We ended up beating that team. And so now we finally enter the gold medal match. And guess who's on the other side of that match? It was, in fact, the team that had beat us. And so I'm thinking, oh, no, here we go again. We just lost to this team like 20 minutes ago, right? There's no way we're going to beat this team. And so we start playing them, and the, the match begins the same way the last match. We start losing, and everything starts falling apart. But as we continue to play, all of a sudden, something just clicked. And not only did we win, but we really blew that team away, right? And so why do I tell this story? Well, one might say it's because you have a serious pickleball addiction. <laughs> So much so that you have to bring it into your sermons. Well, that might be true, but I hope that's really not the reason. The real reason is I think that there's something exciting about a story of loss and then coming back and then winning. There's, there's something about that narrative 
that we like. It's called the comeback kid syndrome. If you think about it, so many movies are like that. The person starts off and they're doing good. Rocky's happening, right? He's training. He's really good and he gets knocked out (laughs) only to come back and try harder and to win. And in fact, this story of the comeback kid is not only a story that we find in Rocky and almost probably every movie that you like watching, but it's actually the very same narrative of God's victory over the universe, if you think about it. How did God win his victory over the universe? Well, we see that principally expressed in Jesus Christ. God humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He tamed and became truly man, a feeble human being, and he went into combat with the devil. And the devil and all his power and all of his might and all of his angels, and no matter what the devil threw at Jesus, Jesus conquered him until he didn't, Right? He conquered him. He refused to be tempted. The devil tried to kill him over and over and over. He was never successful until he was. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, the God-man, with a thousand legions at his side, is beaten and smitten and hung on a cross. And to make matters worse, he's betrayed by one of his best friends. And if you think the devil wasn't involved in this, then why does it say that the devil entered Judas in order to tempt him? So the devil has his victory, or at least so it seems. And then... When we think that it's all over, then comes the resurrection three days later, and then comes the howls and groans of hell as Jesus Christ wins the victory. He defeated him who had the power of death through death, and he rose again, and he freed all of those who were subjected to lifelong slavery to the power of death. So as we see, the story of the comeback kid ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is this narrative of being knocked down and getting back up And ultimately gaining the victory isn't just something that we see in Jesus, but it's something that we see in the church. The church, too, started off as feeble and small and tiny. And there's going to be a phase, if we're not already in that phase, we probably are, where it's going to be giant and strong and conquering of the nations. But then comes a day where the devil, who is not completely defeated, will one day launch an additional attack against the church. And he will cut down the giant and bring us down to the ground But down from the ground we shall arise once more, and we shall gain the victory. And Christ shall come back, and we shall inherit the kingdom of God. And that is the destiny of the church, and that's the destiny of our story. And so I want to look at that a little bit further as we dive into our passage. So if you could open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 to 20. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Consider God's word. It says this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. So in the last sermon I preached here on a Sunday evening... I tried to preach pretty much this passage, or at least a portion of it, and what I tried to do was unpack all of the scriptures teaching in the Antichrist in that 30-minute session. I like 30 pages of notes, and I probably went through like five pages of of those notes. The fact of the matter is, I bit off way too much that I could chew. In 30 minutes, I could not possibly expound all that the scripture says about this topic. And why is that? Because the the Bible actually says a lot about the Antichrist. There's a lot of passages that talk about this figure. But I think it's a sad fact 
that there's often two dispositions about eschatology, and eschatology is just, just a study of the end times, which the Antichrist fits in. And the two dispositions is either you really, really love eschatology, it's your favorite topic, or you might be someone who's just like, eh, <laughs> I'm really not interested in eschatology. What to put it differently? Some churches are so strict about eschatology that if you don't sign off to a pre-tribulational rapture and everything else, you can't even be a member of that church, which I think is way too strict. But other churches are so lax about eschatology that I don't even think anybody knows anything about eschatology in that church besides that Christ is going to come back one day. That's it. That's all they know. And there's obviously, those are two extremes, and there's something that is uh, much more healthy in, in the middle. The fact of the matter is God's word addresses eschatology, and it says that all of God's word is for our benefit. Eschatology is not completely irrelevant. Neither should we be schismatic about future events when the reality is it could happen and unfold in many different ways because we have not yet seen it. Just as things happen about the first coming that were surprising, so things might happen about the second coming that might be surprising. So what I really encourage us all as we think about eschatology and study these things is that we should have an, at, an attitude of interest and humility. We should be interested in what God says about every topic, including eschatology, but we should be have humility recognizing that we don't know it all. We only know some things. And so as I said before, one of the key facets of eschatology is this antichrist figure. So instead of what I did last time in trying to unpack all that the Bible says about the antichrist, I'm going to assume that you know a lot about it already. I'm just going to skim on the top. If you want to know more about that, just ask me and we can talk about it. So the Antichrist is this last time figure who will come at the end of church history. In fact, the very end of church history. In fact, this man's appearance is the thing that marks the very end of church history. So when this man appears, we know that the very end of church history has arrived. In fact, this man will not go to a natural death. How long do people live? 70, 80, 90, really lucky 100 years. This man will not make it to 100. He will die way before that time. Okay, so when this man arrives, you know Christ is coming back literally within a generation. This guy will not die a natural death. What is interesting is that the Antichrist, marking the end of history, is taught explicitly in four separate books. We have Daniel's little horn, who is destroyed. Does anybody know who Daniel's little horn is destroyed by? Off the top of your head, you remember? By the Son of Man. He comes in the clouds and destroys the little horn. That's Christ destroying the Antichrist there. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 has the man of lawlessness who is killed by the appearance of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ. And we have Revelation's beast, which we read already in Revelation chapter 19. What happened? We see that rider on the white horse with the armies of God behind him. That's us coming and slaughtering those who are on the earth and destroying the beast and casting him into the lake of fire. And we also see in our passage here that it implies the same thing, that the Antichrist and the coming of Christ to destroy him marks the end of history. So all these books teach that. And also, all three of those books, Daniel, Second Thessalonians, and the book of Revelation, also teach that this Antichrist figure doesn't just come on a scene and say, ooh, here I am, look at me. He actually does something. Namely, he begins the Great Tribulation. He slaughters and kills Christians. There will be a time of mass murder of Christians like the word is not seen. In fact, if we, we've been doing a Sunday school lesson about Antiochus Epiphanes, which is a type of Antichrist. And so if you want to get a flavor of what the Antichrist would do to you, if you have the privilege or however you want to look at it, the disprivilege of being alive to see him, 
Just look at what Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jews. And those who have been with us during the Sunday school know just how horrific the things that that man did. And if you want to look more into that, I recommend reading the Maccabees. So it will be during this time that the Antichrist slaughters the church, that the church will be cut down. The church that Jesus Christ promised the gates of hell will not prevail against, will look like the gates of hell have prevailed. Or the church that God said that the gospel will go out through all the nations and the end shall come. That worldwide global church will be cut down by this maniac named the Antichrist. But from the ashes of that heap will come the resurrection of the church. The church will that looks defeated and looks hopeless will rise again or be resurrected. It will actually literally be resurrected. Christ will literally come back. The dead in Christ will literally arise. Those who are yet alive, who have not been slaughtered by the Antichrist, will be raptured up and be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And then what you saw in Revelation 19 will unfold. Who are those people on the white horses? That will be us, and we will slaughter the wicked. The Antichrist will be destroyed, and believers will inherit the earth where we will dwell with God forever. That is eschatology in a nutshell. <laughs> That's eschatology. That is what's happening. That is the story of the earth, and that is where we are going. So with that background, if you want to go more in detail, just let me know. Pull me aside, and we can talk about this. I, I love talking about this kind of things. With that background, let's take a look at our passage a little closer. So verse 18 again. Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So notice that our passage... John tells us that they have heard that the Antichrist is coming, that individual we've been talking about. Now, where, of course, did they hear about that? They heard about that in the book of Daniel, right? They heard about that because they understood correctly the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus describes the abomination of desolation. I don't know if they had Second Thessalonians, but they certainly had Paul. And so they had the apostolic teaching contained in Second Thessalonians, where Paul verbally told them about this Antichrist figure. And, of course, they had John himself, who was teaching the things that we later contain in the book of Revelation. So they had the word of God, they had the teaching of Jesus, and they had the apostolic teaching, all telling them about this Antichrist figure that was to arise at the very end. But notice that John goes in a slightly different direction that gets people a little confused. He says that you have heard that there is an Antichrist, or the Antichrist is coming. But then he says, I want to tell you that actually many Antichrists have come. And so it's interesting, he takes this future figure, and then says, well, this future figure is already showing manifestations today, already now. What's even more perplexing, though, is this. John concludes from this, the fact that there is an Antichrist coming, and that there are many Antichrists now, that the last hour has arrived. Do you see that in the text? Now, this is a little confusing. We've got to put our thinking caps on, because you've got to ask yourself this question. How does the appearance of many Antichrists now... Tell us that the last hour is coming when it's only the appearance of the Antichrist that marks the end of history. Does everybody see that question? I'll just say it again. There is a Antichrist that's going to come, and when you see him, you know Christ is going to come back within a generation, within this man's lifetime. But John says, yeah, you know about that guy. But let me tell you, there's a bunch of heretics out there, and they're Antichrist. And that actually tells us we're in the last times. How does that tell us in the last times? See, there's a little bit of a challenge here. It's a little confusing. And even worse, think about this. When did John write this? He didn't write this yesterday or the day before. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. There's been 6,000 years of recorded history. If you follow the genealogies, most likely there's only been 6,000 years of human history. 
So this is a significant amount of time that has passed from the time that John wrote this, and he told us that the appearance of many antichrists at that time marked the fact that it was the last hour. There is a problem here. So how do we make sense of this? Well, what we see John doing is actually not unique to John. The same problem is found in many places of the Bible. For example, James 5.9. He says this, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus Christ is standing at the door. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the book of Revelation is about things that must soon take place. But in the book of Revelation contains the second coming of Christ, the new heavens, new earth. That's 2,000 years ago. Same problem. Or think about John the Baptist. This problem actually arrives in the very beginning of your Bible. John the Baptist says this. He, he enters the scene, right? And he says that he's actually not even New Testament. He's an Old Testament prophet. And his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. As soon as he gets out of the temptation in the wilderness, you know what his very first message is? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's telling you about the nearness of the kingdom of God. And yet the kingdom of God seems to be in some sense 2,000 years away. So how do we make sense of all of these things? How is it that these things are so near, and yet they're 2,000 years removed? So when we get into this situation, what I start doing is thinking, if only we had a Bible passage that would explain all of these difficulties instead of just speculating ourselves. But we do have such a passage, 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's what it says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your prophets, through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. See, this passage is addressing the very problem we're having. People are saying, hey, you said soon. You said it was near. What's going on here? He hasn't come yet. In fact, everything's just continued on and on and on, just like it has always, right? And of course, then he goes on and says, well, actually, everything has not continued. Remember the Noah's flood? Things didn't continue. Things looked radically different before the flood than after, and God did actually intervene in history there. But then he goes in verse 8 and says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. Which means that God's tracking of time is not your tracking of time. Okay, 2,000 years is a very short period of time for God. He's been around for all of eternity. That's the first answer, is that our reckoning is not the same as God's reckoning. The second answer is this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a war. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord is coming. Christ will come back. It is, in fact, soon, even if it's been 2,000 years. This is a guaranteed fact. But the reason he delays is not because he's slow. It's not because he's not a promise-keeping God, but rather because he's patient toward you. He's waiting for the fullness of the church to arrive. That is why. Because he wants people to still be saved and we also have to recognize no man knows that day or that hour. And I think that God wants us in a sense of imminence. He wants us in a sense of knowing that Christ is coming right around the corner. The other fact is this. Are we looking for new revelation? No, we're not. This is the complete revelation. 
this revelation has to make people from the time of the of the time of the first coming all the way to the time of the second coming to be sufficient right he's not going to come and all of a sudden say okay now that's what all these false prophets say oh god has told me now you need to be ready no god tells his church from the very beginning you always need to be ready because this is the next event and if you understand this this also keeps you from ever being tricked by a false prophet who pretends like he's the new messenger from god and there's been many of them joseph smith muhammad and every false christ out there practically has claimed that they are the next thing on god's agenda but there is no next thing on god's agenda god is not doing some new thing god has done a final thing and a final work with christ and he's given us his word that's to be sufficient and the very next thing that's going to happen is not god's going to send joseph smith or muhammad or anybody else but he's going to come back himself and so god wants us to be in a state of recognizing he could come back at any moment I shouldn't say anymore, but imminence, that he could come back relatively quickly. Another thing we have to realize is that Jesus told us that there were going to be two phases of the church. There was going to be a phase of birth pains, and there was going to be a phase where it all was about to unravel at that moment, marked by the Great Tribulation. And so if anyone's ever seen a woman give birth or birth pains, they recognize that you can see that the baby's going to come. The very fact that there's birth pains happening, you know that the baby's going to come, but you don't know when. In fact, this is a common experience with people who have the first-time baby or not, or sometimes just period, is you go to the hospital and they're like checking how much you are, and you're like, okay, a couple hours later, right? You're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. You get the call, she's in labor, and then two days later sometimes she has the baby. But there's a certain time of intensity that you know, okay, the baby's going to come right now. But you don't know when that moment's going to happen. All you know is that the woman is in birth pain and going to have labor within a relatively short time. And that's what's really going on with the church. The church is in a perpetual state of birth pains that you're waiting. When is these birth pains going to flip over and now the, the birthing contractions are happening and now this baby's going to come out within a very, very short period of time, within a few hours or moments. And so that's what's going on here, that there are these signs before the end time must happen. But these signs are already showing themselves. For example... One sign is that the gospel must spread throughout all of the earth, and then the end shall come. Well, when was that fulfilled? Well, it hasn't been fulfilled yet because Christ hasn't come, right? But in some sense, that was already fulfilled in the first century. And it's been fulfilled over and over. Do you know that there's Christians in every single nation in the world? Every single nation in the world has a Christian. And so we thought, if you go back in time, we thought, okay, when that happens, Christ is going to come. And it didn't happen. And so we think... Oh, it must be people groups. And then we get Christians all the people groups, and then we say, oh, well, they're not sufficiently reached. It must actually be this higher percentage and higher percentage. We just don't know, is my point, right? The further along we get, the more likely that we are there, but we don't know when that is completely been fulfilled. There are these signs that are already present, and my point is this. They're already in some sense fulfilled. And going specifically to our text, how is it that the presence of many antichrists on the scene Tell us that we're at the end because there is one antichrist figure that marks the end. But the fact that there's already these many antichrists means that at any moment, one of these many antichrists could become the antichrist. So when people are saying it could be this guy, that guy, or that guy, that's not totally crazy talk. It could have been this guy, that guy. I mean, think about one individual in particular, Hitler. He looked a whole lot like the antichrist. He really did. This guy was a maniac. He was a psycho. He was killing all the Jews. He was extremely powerful. He looked like the Antichrist, but then he wasn't. 
But he just as well could have been if, in fact, the restrainer would have allowed Satan to allow Hitler to be the Antichrist. What you have to understand is that the reason why these individuals in history, Nero was another one who looked a whole lot like the Antichrist, but he wasn't. And the reason is, is because we have God, who is the great restrainer, restraining Satan, not allowing him to allow the Antichrist to rise up and then usher in the final stage of history. But the fact that we see the many Antichrists now already show us that at any moment, Christ could simply allow the restrainer to be removed and the Antichrist could come. And then the end of history would unfold. And when that would happen, then all of our money that we've saved up for our children's college would never come to pass. All the money we put in our retirement accounts would never happen. Maybe our vacation that we plan next year would never arrive. And all of our plans would be changed because the end of history would usher in and Christ would come back. So what I'm suggesting here is that I do not believe that Christ could literally come back at any moment. Because if Christ came literally back at any moment, there would be never an Antichrist. There has to be an Antichrist, so there has to be some amount of time that transpires between this moment and the Antichrist being revealed. But the time that that could happen could be any moment. The Antichrist could reveal himself at any moment, and then the end of history would be ushered in very quickly thereafter. So that's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying that as we see many Antichrists already on the scene, we realize that the signs of the ends have been already are being fulfilled, and we must prepare ourselves for the very end because it happened extremely quickly. So let's go ahead and take a look at the next passage, verse 19. Here's what God's word says. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This passage is a little confusing because it kind of goes us and back and forth and back and forth. But if we take a little time, we'll be able to unpack this and figure out what it means. But I can tell you that this passage, for me personally, has a very special place in my heart because... I remember as I was studying the question of whether we could lose our salvation, this passage was a decisive passage to come up with my thinking on this matter. And just to show you how much of a hot issue, this issue of whether we can lose our salvation, there are many people who may even surprise you that believe that you can lose your salvation. Let me just name a few that may surprise you. Augustine? Martin Luther? Not just the crazies. Like, respected theologians have believed this. Why? Because there are some scriptures that seem to suggest that you can lose your salvation. In fact, there's a whole book of scriptures, namely the book of Hebrews, that seems to suggest that very thing. There's not something we can just shrug off and say, no way, it can't happen. There are respected theologians and respected scriptures, and, and scriptures that seem to suggest that. But there are other scriptures, such as the passage that we have here, and, for example, Philippians 1.6, that says this, I am sure... Of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, to suggest that we cannot lose our salvation. So, what do we do? We have respected theologians on both sides, and we have scripture with the plain meaning of the scripture. Both seem to be saying different things. Well, what I personally try to do when that happens is I try to find one decisive passage or one decisive argument that the other side simply cannot make sense of without doing all kind of verbal gymnastics and coming up with all these implausible explanations. In other words, if you're an open-minded person, you often find that passages can go either way, right? I can see it that way. I can see it this way. But sometimes you get to a decisive point where you realize, no, that just simply doesn't make sense and your argument is not going to work. Think about the case of abortion, for example. There are arguments on both sides, but one argument that simply is decisive in my thinking 
is the fact that location does not equate personhood. It's just completely irrational to think that you're not a person inside the womb. One second later, you are a person. That makes no sense. Right? That's decisive in my thinking, um, at least partially decisive in some ways. And so this passage, I think, also functions that way in my own thinking. So let's, let's take a look at it. Verse 19. They went out from us. So who is the they? Well, the they are the false prophets. The they are the Antichrist. They are the people who are against Christ, who were once part of the church. But despite the fact that they were members of the local church, the text goes on to say, but they were not of us. So in such, some sense, they went out from us. You can't go out of something that you're not part of, right? You can't leave something you never entered. So in one sense, they were part of us. But in another sense, they were not of us. That is, they were members of the visible body, but not members of the invisible body. They were members of the local church, but not members of the heavenly church. Now, let me just say this right here. Sometimes when we read this, we just think about some other church. Do you realize that this is probably true of even this church? Isn't that sad? Isn't that disturbing to think about that possibly? That there might be even people in this church who are members of this church, that this passage is true about them too. Before you go looking around or looking at me, I just ask you to look at yourself and make sure that's not true of you. You're the only one who has access to your own heart and your own relationship with God and your faith. Right? We all accept each other in charity, and I want that to continue. But you have to look at your own heart and see if this is true of you. And in fact, you are someone who's a member of the local church, but not truly a member of Christ's invisible church. But this idea that there will be false believers in the church is not just described here, but it's described in many passages. For example, in Jude 1.4 it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. People who have crept in unnoticed. Now, let me make one other point about this. It's not the church's responsibility to ensure that nobody will creep in unnoticed. Isn't that the whole point of creeping in unnoticed? They crept in when you weren't looking. right? We have a very easy interest exam to get into the church. One, you want to. Two, you agree to follow Jesus Christ into baptism. And three, you have a credible profession of faith. Right? You just say the right things. You know the true gospel and you claim to believe in that true gospel. That's the test. And so that test is not foolproof. There will be, in fact, people in this church, Lord forbid, but most likely there will be eventually people in this church, if there's not already, who creep in unnoticed. And there were people in the apostolic church that done the same thing. The goal of the church is not to keep out all unbelievers. It's not the goal. Right? The goal of the church is to allow true believers to come in, recognizing that false believers will come in, and we have another way of handling false believers. Not by making the, the entrance of the church so powerful and so strong that we keep out half the believers too, and we only let the most mature believers in to prevent some possible unbeliever from arriving in the church. That is unbiblical, and we should not do that. The point here is that these people were not people who were true believers. They're people who creep in unnoticed. Think about people who come to your house. You describe them as people who creep in unnoticed. No, they come in through the front door when you notice them. These people crept in through the back door when you're sleeping. These are pretenders. These are fakes. These are false believers. These are people who appear to be Christians for a little while, and then they fall away. Now, notice John does not say that these are true believers who were led astray and abandoned God. You see that? He didn't say that. These aren't people who once followed Christ and just, you know, went to the wayside. They were false the entire time. And he goes on to say this. In verse 19, for if they had been of us, that is, if they would have been true Christians and true believers, 
they would have continued with us. Now, I think that this is absolutely remarkable statement from John, and this was really decisive in my thinking. What he says here is the test, if you're a true believer or not, there's many tests, okay? He could have said most, a lot of things, and he said other things before. If you just look, the whole book of First John is really about the test if you're a believer, and he talks about if you walk in the light, if you believe in Christ. Those are all good tests, right? Do you actually live a godly life? Are you living in gross immorality, unrepentant sin? Are you living a double life? You're not a believer. That's what he says earlier on in the book. Do you actually not believe in Jesus Christ? You're not a believer. Here's another test. In addition to whether or not you actually believe in the gospel and whether you actually are living a not a gross immorality, sinful life, the other test would be whether you persevere. Right? Sometimes they say the proof is in the pudding. Well, I remember when I was getting married, and this is not to speak bad about anybody. Um, we were very young. I was 19. Um, and there's a whole bunch of scenarios. But I remember there's a lot of people who thought these are a bunch of idiot children who are going to ruin. This is just a terrible idea. It's going to fail. And we're going to be there on the other side. And I don't think they met it in a mean-spirited way, but it just looked bad. Right? And yet, time has proved them wrong. Isn't that true? So I, don't have to, I can say whatever I want. I can write as many letters and say, no, believe me. Time will prove you right or prove you wrong. Time reveals all things. Well, think about a different example. You ever seen those fake diamonds? Right? I mean, they're all over the mall. In fact, most people have fake diamonds probably, right? Because real diamonds are expensive. Maybe you should buy fake diamonds because real diamonds are expensive. I don't know. You decide on that. But if you look at a fake diamond, here's what amazed me about fake diamonds. They look like real diamonds. Or put it differently. What surprised me about real diamonds is how much real diamonds look like fake diamonds. But as someone who used to wear fake diamonds... There's an interesting thing that happens to fake diamonds over time. They get all foggy, and you got to hit the Windex on them and wipe them off. You know, this has never happened to real diamonds. You get a little dirt and all that other stuff, grime, you got to wipe off. But it doesn't get all foggy like that. Same thing happens to fake gold and all this other stuff, right? It doesn't persevere over time. At first, it looks good, but then over time, it changes colors. All of a sudden, your gold earrings are green, and you know something's gone seriously wrong. That's what's going on here, is that true believers persevere. That's what it says. For they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The One of the signs of your true believer is whether you will persevere. What will happen when your mom dies? What will happen when the miscarriage happens? What will happen when you get old? What will happen when people in the church fail you, which we will? What will happen when you feel lonely? When you hear a new atheistic argument? What will happen? Will you persevere? Will you abandon the faith? If you abandon the faith, what does the scripture say? You are not of us. For if you were with us, you would have continued with us. And then it goes on to say, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. John says here that apostasy is of false believers, and God exposes these false believers of who they are. And this is really an act of God's grace to us. By grace, he expels the false believers. And that doesn't mean that it feels good for us on this side, by the way. As we see people abandon the faith, as we see, what are people saying today? What's their statement? What are they saying? There's this new thing that people are, there's this new terminology that they're, um, they don't say apostasy. They don't say I'm apostatizing. They don't say I'm abandoning the faith. They say, who knows that faith? Deconstructing. Deconstructing. That 
really disturbs me when I hear people, what's our, when someone says they're deconstructing, I say you're apostatizing. Let's just say you're abandoning the faith, right? The second thing is, when that happens, it grieves us, doesn't it? It hurts us to see this person who once professed not to profess. And that's totally natural for us to, to happen. But you also understand that this is actually, in some ways, a sense of God's means of grace for us of purging the false believers from our midst. So there are two ways that false believers can be purged from the church. One is voluntary departure. Two is involuntary departure. This would be a voluntary departure. They have a new group. They become atheists. They become non-believers. whatever. They just utterly give up on church. They say, I'm not coming to church anymore. I just refuse. Permanently. Just done. There's a whole bunch of different categories of people who voluntarily leave the church. But here's the commonality. They're not here. They abandon the church and no longer are part of the midst. That's the first way that people leave the church. The second way people leave the church is a much more messy way. It's when they refuse to go. In some ways, it's a blessing when unbelievers leave. I say some ways. It always hurts. We don't want that. We want them here. We want them not unbelieving, but believing. If they're not believing, we want them here listening so they can believe. Okay, so I'm not saying that we're happy that unbelievers leave church. It's not happy at all. It's a terrible experience. However, in some ways, if you're not going to believe, please leave. And you refuse to change your mind. That's the caveat. If you're not going to believe and you're willing to change your mind, open-minded, please stay. If you utterly refuse to believe and only are here to get women or some other diabolical plan, please leave. Because you're not helping anybody. In fact... The history of the church has been full of examples of unbelievers who refused to leave, and then what did they do? They corrupted the church that they stayed in. Does that make sense? That's why I'm saying that they must ultimately leave, because if you have a church full of unbelievers, then the word of God will not be appealing to unbelievers, and then the word of God will cease, and the church will cease to be a church. And so the the messy way of getting unbelievers out of the church is called excommunication, to excommunicate. And even that term is a little confusing, because we think of the word Communication as talking. This does not mean you don't talk to them, right? This means that the relationship, the communion, specifically the communion table, this is what it's talking about, that they're no longer considered believers. They can attend the church. They can visit the church. We want them here. That's fine. You can talk to them, hang out with them. That's fine. What it's talking about, though, is you no longer consider them someone that you're willing to commune with as a believer because they're not a believer. And this is a very messy and painful and frightening state that the church has to go through, but it is what the church must do. And one of the reasons that the church must do this, besides just preserving and protecting the church, is also because of what church membership is supposed to be to you. What does church membership mean? Well, it means that you're a member here, but what does it really mean? It's a sign, a visible sign to you of your membership in the heavenly church. Because Christ built this church to reflect that church. And this church imperfectly reflects that church, but it's still supposed to reflect it. And so when you're a member of this church, it is a sign to you that you're really a member of that church. But if your behavior is such that, that this church on the local side removes you from its membership, that's a sign to you also that you're actually not part of the invisible church. And that's why Christ says that he's given us the keys. And that's why Christ says that when you do this, Christ is with you confirming that decision. And so what this is supposed to do to the psyche of the individual is to recognize that if you've been excommunicated from a church, then from all appearances, you are not part of the invisible church. And Christ, as long as everything's been done in a rightful manner, Christ is agreeing with that decision. And what this is supposed to result in the psyche of the person is fear and trepidation. 
and Lord willing, if they are a true believer, they will repent and reestablish themselves in the local church. If they are not a true believer, they probably just won't care about any of this, and they'll continue on their terrible way. And that is church discipline. But what we have here is these people who have abandoned voluntarily. And this idea that people who abandon the church, whether voluntary or involuntary, were never actually true believers. Again, caveat, sometimes we do excommunicate people who later come back, and that's the hope for everyone, right? But this idea that people who abandoned the church were truly never members of it is also found in a very interesting passage, very frightening passage, Matthew seven twenty one, which says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, not everyone who professes Jesus is actually saved. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name and go to Sunday school in your name and sing songs in your name and go caroling in your name and tithe in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the key phrase is, I never knew you. I never knew you. Despite all your religiosity, I never knew you. We were never truly in a fellowship relationship. And so as I wrap up this sermon, again, I don't want you looking at your neighbor. I want you looking at yourself and asking yourself, do you know God? Have you come to know him? Have you come to believe in him? And if you have, you have the wonderful promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you. You have the wonderful promise I think we already read in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. That's your promise. You will never perish. He began to work in you. will bring it to completion. But if you are just pretending, you have no such promise. Right? In fact, you have a different promise. He will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Let me say a few other things before we close here. This doctrine of perseverance of the saints should not cause anybody to then say, well, since I know I'm saved right now, then I can neglect my salvation because I can't lose it anyways, right? This is a terrible distortion of the doctrine. And if we think that we can neglect our salvation, we should remember the passage in Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the scripture you need to remember. See, what's interesting is the devil always uses the wrong passage or the right passage at the wrong time, put it that way, right? You're living in gross immorality and sin. This is a scripture that you should be thinking of. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. But if you're following Christ and walking in his ways, this is the kind of scripture you should remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. He's going to hold you to the end. So we should never pervert this doctrine so that we all of a sudden become slack. But again, as we end here, let me just say this once more, that the question that I want to focus on is not whether we will finish our race, because you will finish your race if you have followed Christ. The question is, have you begun that race? Have you ever actually found yourself to be a true believer. And the scary thing is that we found in Matthew chapter 7, for example, is that the people were self-deceived. See, it's one thing if you deceive me, okay? And who am I? Nobody. It's another thing if you deceive yourself. Now you're really bad. That's a really frightening thing. If you have actually deceived yourself and you yourself believe that you're a believer when in fact you're not. So how do you know if you're a believer? Well, do you trust in Christ? Do you believe in him? Do you walk in his ways? Do you see him as your only means of salvation? Do you recognize yourself as a sinner? Not just one of many sinners, but you yourself a sinner. You yourself are someone who's violated God's law. You yourself being someone who deserves the wrath of God. The wage of sin is death. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have the sentence of condemnation upon you. Even your entire Christian life, you deserve nothing but hell. Right? Because we have continued to sin in our Christian life. And the continuous punishment of sin is hell. That's the first thing is recognize who you are, a sinner. Recognize who Christ is, a Savior. A Savior who came and lived the perfect life that we ought to live. And died the death that we ought to die in order to give us a free gift that he offers to you. Not your neighbor, to you. He offers it to your neighbor too, but I'm talking to you. He offers this gift to you. He said, all who believe in me shall not perish but have eternal life. And all you have to do is receive this gift to repent and believe. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? We're not saved by a prayer, but let me tell you this. If you believe this message, why would you not pray? Why would you not ask God and go to him and confess to him? That you, in fact, are a sinner. And that he is a savior. And that you do believe in him. And that you do give your life to him. And you do want to be saved. That's the most natural thing to do as a believer. If you have not done that, why? And why not do it now? Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for your gospel. We thank you so much, Lord, that you offer salvation to us. We know that you're sincere. You say if we believe, if we, if I, if they believe, they will be saved. We thank you so much for that, Lord. We pray that if there be anyone here that does that is deceiving friends, family, church members, pastors, but most importantly themselves, that they would not leave here in self-deception. They would come, repent, believe, and be saved, knowing that if they gain this salvation, they can never lose it, because they will never lose it, because they will follow you all the days of their life. Lord, help us who have been saved to keep running after you to give more of ourselves. We gave ourselves to you when we got saved, and we asked that we would give more of ourselves to you. Thank you, Lord, that despite the fact the Antichrist is coming, you're coming. You destroy him. You rise us up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.